Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So this week we're launching back into our current series titled Life in the Kingdom. Last week we had an amazing Mother's Day service. Um, incredible. I mean, I don't know if I've cried in a service in like my life, but I, was, I had tears falling down my face. So that was incredible. This week we are back into our series, Life in the Kingdom. Life in the Kingdom is our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, where Jesus gives a countercultural a countercultural way to live as Christians. The last few times that we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Greg taught on Matthew 17 through 20, which is Jesus teaching that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And then he taught on verses 27 through 30, which was lust. This morning, I get to open us up to another case study in verses 21 through 26, which is anger. So what Jesus did in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, is he teaches the main point of this portion of his discourse. It's that the law is not abolished, but he comes to fulfill it. And then verses 21 through the end of, the chap- of chapter 5, Jesus goes on to further amplify what he means by being the law fulfiller. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And I would highly recommend, if you haven't listened to it, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to Greg's sermon on fulfilling the law because it is one of the most important foundation messages of the Sermon on the Mount. If we don't get that part right, the rest of it's not really going to make that much sense. And this morning, this morning's message is a build off of the foundation of Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I would go back. And if you have listened to it, I would go back and listen to it again. In Greg's message about what Jesus was doing, point two was that Jesus expands what the law requires. Jesus expands what the law requires. And so in verses 21 through the end of the chapter, Jesus uses case studies to teach us how he expands what the law requires and what that means. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've said this before, but Jesus was not getting rid of the moral law. He wasn't, getting ri- he wasn't saying you can do whatever you want. He was unpacking it at a much deeper level. He was, he was unpacking it at a heart level. He wasn't correcting the moral law of God. Now, this is important. Jesus wasn't correcting the moral law of God. Jesus was correcting the legalistic, behavior-driven interpretation of the moral law of God. Okay, this is vitally important. Jesus was not correcting the law of God. He was correcting the legalistic, behavior-driven interpretation of the law. So what's God's law? And I'm not going to spend too much time uh, on this because we we have a whole sermon on it, but the law is the prescribed way that Christians are meant to live differently than the world around them. The law is God's prescribed way that you are meant to live counter-cultural. We've talked about it before, but the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics. It's the ethics of how Christians are meant to live differently. And Jesus 
uses the law to teach us that in the kingdom, a countercultural life is one that goes down to the heart. You're not countercultural if you only have external conformity to the law. Countercultural living goes to the heart. He doesn't just ask us to have external conformity, but a heart that is internally alive to God. And through that heart, we live countercultural. Okay, so there's two different responses to this. There are people who try to live countercultural in light of the law out of a legalistic behavior checklist religion. You see that God's law is severe, and you say, well, I, obviously I have to live up to this law. People, you know, they're looking at me. I need to live a certain way. And so you live up to the law out of a legalistic behavior checklist religion. And if you do that, you are impossible to be around. You are impossible to be around. You make up weird rules. That's what the Pharisees did. They saw God's moral law, and they made up as many weird rules as they possibly could so that it looked like they had external conformity to the law. These people usually make others smaller around them. They don't free others to be who they're meant to be. They make them smaller. These people are usually judgmental on things that Jesus was never judgmental on. How you should dress. Jesus didn't care. He wore sandals. Even though my wife does judge me for my chacos. They, I don't know, maybe I'm too big to wear them. This person is usually someone who makes you feel really bad that you don't have their discipline to behave. You don't have their discipline to be able to behave exactly how you're meant to. A legalistic checklist religion is only concerned with external behaviors. Look a certain way, do a certain thing, talk a certain way, and we're good. That person's impossible to be around. They create a standard that God didn't create. But the person who is countercultural because their heart is becoming more and more alive to the gentle and gracious Savior. Titch and I were talking this week, and he said an amazing thing. They bring relational ease relational ease and comfort with them. Because when your heart is being made more alive to Christ, you have the real thing. You don't pretend to know Jesus by, by, your, by your behavior. Your behavior confirms a heart that knows Jesus personally and is deeply at rest. Do you see the difference? And that is the type of people that we want to be at Southside. A heart that's being genuinely transformed from the inside so your behaviors naturally fall in line. There's no spiritual weight behind a life that behaves out of duty. And you know it. I mean, if we have people in here who can tell pretenders, you know who I'm talking about. You're like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. The real power, the real power is when your heart is authentically alive to God and your behaviors fall in line. And this is the countercultural life that Jesus offers and teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount if we're open to it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount out of a legalistic, behavior-driven religion, you are, it's going to be impossible. We read the Sermon on the Mount with a heart that's authentically alive to God. And so Jesus continues talking about what it means to live countercultural in light of him fulfilling the law. In Matthew 5, 
21 through 26. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to read it. And if you don't, that's okay. You can listen to it as well. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, Jesus isn't correcting the moral law of God. Of course, murder is wrong. He's expanding it. He's correcting the bad interpretation of the law. Verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's pretty overwhelming, right? You're not supposed to murder, clearly, but don't be mad. I mean, that's hard. Jesus expands the law, and he does it to, in a very deeply and personal way. And I think that he does it for a lot of different reasons. You can take this message and make it very practical and just talk about the dangers of anger, and you can take it and be very heady. What I want to do this morning is I, I want to talk about the general observations about the law with the practicality of the sixth commandment, which is what Jesus uses here. So in your notes, number one is this. Jesus expands the law. He expands the law to teach that God's standards are much greater than it seems. God's standards are much greater than it seems. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Like I said before, of course God is against murder. He's for life. He's for love. Of course he hates murder. But his standard is far greater than that. Murder is the extreme edges of God's standard. We talked about before, adultery is the extreme edges of God's standard. Murder is the extreme edges. But according to God's law, it's not just murder that deserves the death penalty, something much greater than that. You can't be angry with someone. You can't insult someone. If you call someone a fool, all of these disqualify, disqualify you from perfection and also deserve the death penalty. Jesus is not just concerned with murder. He's equally concerned with the seed that breeds it. And he isn't just concerned with the external action of anger. He's equally concerned with the heart that facilitates that anger. He is the most countercultural person in human history. Let's look at how Jesus expands the standard. Make it a little more personal. All right? You're not allowed to hold a grudge. That's against God's law. You can't hold a grudge. Anytime you meet anyone, you're not allowed to dismiss them. I mean, I, there's some weightiness in this room right now. It's, this is tough. This is tough stuff. 
You're never allowed to blow someone off. I mean, how many times did I just pretend I didn't read a text message? Too many. You're never allowed to be cruel. And just in case you feel like you don't do any of those things, which I think those would, have, would disqualify 99.9% of the room, but just in case you don't think you've done those things, Jesus makes the standard even harder than that. You can never call or think someone is an idiot. You can never think someone's dumb in your heart. I mean, that disqualified everyone, right? It's okay to say, yeah, I, me too. That's what he says if you call someone a fool. If you think that your ways are better than their ways, you've committed, you've committed a crime against God's law because you have now said, I'm smarter than you, you're dumb, you're stupid. Why would you ever do that? I mean, of course we do that. You can't think that someone's empty-headed. You can't think that their life decisions are dumb. You can't look at the way your spouse does something differently than you and think, what a dummy. You're breaking God's law. You can't be in traffic. And this is something that I do. If you are at the red light and you're the first in line, the second the light turns green, you should be driving. Because car seven is going to miss the light if you're not ready to go. And when that person doesn't go, I, Melissa has been in the car with me far too. She always just says, chill out. But I'm like, just drive. What are you doing? Please. You are so dumb. You've broken the sixth commandment. In 2014, the Ohio State Buckeyes were playing in the Big Ten Championship against Michigan State. And Ohio State had, in my opinion, the best team in the nation that year. I think they lost like a really dumb, in a really dumb way um, earlier in the season. And they're playing. It's like the fourth quarter. It's like a third and two. They're losing. They have Carlos Hyde who, in my mind, rushed for like 10 yards of carry. Probably not true, but that's what I remember about Carlos Hyde. They had Braxton Miller. And in my mind, they need this first down. They're going to drive. They're going to score. They're going to win. They're going to win the national championship, right? Now, all you have to do is you have to run a power up the middle to Carlos Hyde. Two times, he's going to get you a yard. Guaranteed. It's happened the whole year. Well, what does Tom Herman do? He decides to call jet sweep right with Braxton Miller two times in a row. And he gets stuffed both times. And I was livid. I, was, I, was, I would just, in my group chats, text, give the ball to Hyde. For no reason, like, years later. I had a conversation with my dad last year. We were talking about last year's Ohio State Buckeyes, and I was like, everything would be different if they just gave it to, gave it to Carlos Hyde. Because then they would have won the national championship. It would have it just been way better for us. I legitimately thought that Tom Herman and Urban Meyer were dumb. And I said it out loud. And guess what? I am liable to the judgment of God for that. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. You can break the sixth commandment and nobody could ever know it. You guys feel overwhelmed by the weight of this law? As it's expanded, I feel very overwhelmed because I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my, like I was praying with Titch this morning and I was like, dude, I literally thought someone was dumb on my drive to the 
to the Sunday morning where I have to teach about how it's breaking God's law to think that someone's dumb. I mean, it's impossible, right? It's impossible, and that's what Jesus is trying to convey. And I actually think that Jesus was merciful in his discourse on the Sermon on the Mount because he only expands three laws. Could you imagine if Jesus expanded all ten commandments? I mean, he didn't even talk about the other seven commandments. And I think he was merciful because if I was standing there listening to this and he started to to list one through ten the ways that I've broken the law on an expanded view... I would have been like, Jesus, I get it, man. I get it. I get it. I can't keep this. I've got no chance here. I have no chance to keep that law. Which is the second point of my message this morning. Jesus expands the law to teach. He makes it impossible to teach that God's standard is meant to draw you to Him. God's standard is meant to draw you to Him. We're going to jump to verses 25 to 26 here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus uses a lot of metaphors in the New Testament to talk about the relationship between you and God and the judgment and... um, I think there is practicality in these two verses, but I think what Jesus is really trying to say is come to terms quickly with God. Realize where you are in relation to the law and beg for mercy. Jesus means to overwhelm you with his standard so that you stop trying to earn your way to God. Do you know what Jesus does with people who look at the law and say, I can do that? That's achievable. You know what Jesus does? Every single time in the New Testament, he makes it harder. Every single time. With the rich young ruler, he said, I've been perfect. And Jesus said, okay, sell everything you have then. If you look at the law and you say, I can do it, he's going to make it harder. Because the point of the law is that you can't do it. And that's what he's doing to the Pharisees. They see the law. They think it's achievable. They think they're doing a pretty good job. And Jesus makes it harder. And that's what he does. He always expands the law to impossible standards so that you have no other choice but to say, I can't. I can't. Now get this. Much of the inner turmoil of the Christian stems from the problem that you think that you can. You think that you can. You think that you have this issue that you you can work on, and if you give it enough strength and enough power and enough will in your own strength, you're going to solve it. And a hundred times out of a hundred, it doesn't work. You think you've got the discipline, the grit to be perfect. It doesn't work. Understanding the possibility of God's standard is the first step to true rest. Now that seems weird. That seems countercultural. That to find rest is to understand that God's standard is impossible? I mean, how does that work? How does that work? It works like this. John T. Alcock says, and I think it's in your notes, that true Christian freedom comes when you honestly face the impossibility of your own obedience, and it leads you not to despair, 
but to the God who is able to do all things. True Christian freedom comes when you honestly face the impossibility of your own obedience. You are honest with yourself. You say, there's no possible way I've got this. And it doesn't crush you. It leads you to God. Christian enslavement is when you look at the standard of God and you think you can. You want to know why? Because you become enslaved to your own self-righteousness. You become enslaved to your own rules that you've created for yourself. And every time that you don't live up to the rule that you created and God didn't create for you, you wallow in shame and and guilt because you're trying to live up to your own self-righteousness, to your own ability to do something that God said you were never able to do. The right response to the impossibility of the law is to draw nearer than you ever have before. And a Christian living in freedom hears the Sermon on the Mount and is overwhelmed. We say that a lot. It is over, you are overwhelmed not to despair, but the overwhelming command leads you to dependence. And nothing is more freeing in Christ than seeing what the law requires and then resting in the fact that the only way that you can live that way is that Jesus has to produce it in you. I mean, that is, it's like my instant pot when you release the pressure valve, realizing that there's a standard that I'm trying to live up to and Jesus is fulfilling it on my behalf. That's amazing. So let's, make, let's take it one step further. Let's make it a little more personal. How does Jesus deal with character flaws? How do you guys think Jesus deals with character flaws? You have something that you need to have a hard conversation because the way that you are right now is not quite how God has made you to be. How do you think Jesus deals with that? I'm going to tell you, he has never said, fix your anger and then you'll be right with me. He has never said, be less angry and then you're right with me. He offers something much deeper, much more eternal. And there are many examples in the New Testament of how Jesus deals with character flaws in a countercultural way. We deal with our own character flaws by looking in the mirror and saying, I got to try really, really, really hard to not do this anymore. And Jesus says, That's not going to work, actually. In John 4, there's a story about a woman who had issues with adultery. And Jesus met her at the well in the middle of the day. And he met, he met her there to deal with her heart. And he dealt with her character flaw in the most profound way. He did not say, go and sin no more and then come to me. He said, he didn't, I mean, this is amazing. This is amazing what he said. I'm like getting chills up here remembering how amazing our God is. He said, come experience the living water that heals all parts of your soul. Find rest in me. He says, okay, you're dealing with adultery, but the real problem is you're not resting in me right now. Surrender your control over the character flaw. Be healed by my presence and my care. And once we deal with that, Once we deal with that, once you rest in me, you will be empowered by my strength, by my capacity, 
by my spirit to go and sin no more. You're not able to go and sin no more without God. It's not possible. If you have a character flaw and the first step to make it right is to work on the character flaw, that is the flipped way that Jesus did it. Jesus deals with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. And out of that, deep rest comes and then you can be a less angry person. Jesus does not pastor behaviors. He pastors hearts. It would be easy to pastor behavior. I mean, I'm a persuasive person. I could make a lot of people kind of do what I want them to do. Like, I mean, some people are going to fight me on it, but with my friends, like, we're, if someone wants to persuade everyone else, it's going to happen, right? Jesus doesn't want to persuade your behavior. He wants to pastor your heart. And the impossibility of the law is meant for you to say, Jesus, I can't possibly live up to this on my own. I need you. And here's the thing about me. I am going to be angry without Jesus. There isn't a discipline that I can give myself to not lash out in anger. Some of you have played sports with me. I promise it's not going to happen. I've tried for 29 years. It's never worked. I'm going to drive to the Sunday morning where I have to teach on it and be angry at people. I'm still going to talk about the 2014 Big Ten Championship in 20 years if it's not for Jesus. And I'm going to insult Tom Herman who won a national championship. I need a Savior who takes all my character flaws and all my sins and says, relax. Surrender yourself to me. I've got this. I've got, I've, I got this. And that's Jesus. He sets the bar so impossibly high to show you how great his mercy really is. And there's no greater rest than to see that Jesus' standard is fulfilled by him on my behalf. And this passage before used to make me really, really afraid. I would be like, man, am I liable to, to the hell of fire right now? I was angry today. I was terrified of the Sermon on the Mount. But through a restored heart, the passage actually brings me hope because when I look at it and I read it, I remember that I have a Savior that would love me and save me and uphold me and care for me and offer me rest even though I don't come anywhere close to living up to his standard. He draws us near to change us from the inside out. And he teaches us his mercy by teaching us that his standard is far greater than we've ever even thought it was. Here's the last point, and then we'll be done. Jesus expands the law to teach relationships trump religion. Relationships trump religion. Verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus illustrates the severity. So he's, he's expanding the sixth commandment. He's making it harder by saying anger separates. Anger breaks relationships. Anger fully grown 
is the ultimate separator. It's murder. He doesn't just say you can separate with actual murder. He said you can murder with your tongue, the way that you speak. You can murder with your mind, the way that you think about people. And you can murder with your heart. Anger separates you. And the standard of God doesn't want you to no longer be angry. That's not what it's all. He doesn't just want you to no longer be angry. He's for for something much greater. He's for reconciliation. He's for love. And Jesus says that the standard of God is a heart that is so full of love that you want to be right with your brothers and sisters. Now, if you read this and you said, I need to be reconciled to everyone I've ever wronged, and I'm going to do it in my own power, once again, how impossible is that? I'm go- like, there's no way I'm going to do that. Some of you might be able to do it. I know that I'm not going to do it. I know it, because I've already not done it. In fact, being reconciled to those that you have angered is much more important than giving empty, pretentious gifts of worship to God. So we think, it's fine, I've angered someone, someone's angered me, whatever, I went to church and I praised God, I'm good. And Jesus says, it's much more severe than that. Your heart being changed is one that's in the middle of worship says, man, God, you have broken me over this person that I have angered. Help me to reconcile. And I have the tendency to say, I'm not angry anymore. You know, I'm not angry anymore. I'm good. I'm done with that person, but I'm over it, right? But a heart alive to God is one that's empowered to say, Lord, I need you to take my anger, and I need you to help me reconcile to my brother and sister. And here's what Jesus is saying. The law is not fulfilled by just not murdering, and it's not even fulfilled by just not being angry It goes one step further. The standard of God is love. So much love that you can't harbor resentment. You would rather make things right than give empty worship. And that is an impossible command. How can I be right with everyone? I'm not going to be able to do it. Now remember, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to overwhelm you to draw you to the cross of Christ. And it would be sad for me this morning if you left this this church and you said, what I need to do is be less angry. That would be sad for me. That would make it easier for some relationships. Obviously, if you're not an angry person, it's easier to have relationships. And it would probably make you a little more peaceful because when you're not angry, you're probably at peace. But if all you're doing is looking at a character flaw and working really hard to change it, you've missed the point. And the Pharisees missed the point. They built rules and regulations around their lives so that they would have external character morality. And guess what? If you have external character morality, or if you have external knowledge of God, and your hearts are not alive to Him, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And the point of realizing that you have a character flaw is to see your heart clearly. God is meaning to expose you so he can heal you. See how important it is? God is meaning to expose you so that he can heal you. And here's what he's doing. He's stripping away pride. 
He's stripping away surface-level obedience, any ability to say, I can do it. He's stripping away pretentious religiosity. He's stripping away any sort of bone in your body that says, I have got the power to do it on my own. I think that Jesus would want us to feel the weight of the command. And it might hurt. And here's why it hurts for me. And it might hurt for you in a different way. This is why this hurts for me. Because I have, to admit, I have to admit that I'm not that great. I have to admit that I'm not that great of a person without Christ. But it's in that place of weakness, in that place of weakness, that you will learn to truly find freedom in Christ. And it's in these six words. I can't, Jesus, but you can. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.